I hear the announcer say. We're the talk of the internet. Talkzone.com. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Well, hello and welcome to this week's Dr. Robbins Show with me, Dr. Larry Robbins. I'm a neurologist and pain specialist and psychopharmacologist and my wife, Susie Robbins, who is a social worker. Ours is a show dedicated to cutting-edge medical issues du jour. You can email us at DocLarryRobbins at AOL, that's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com, or come to our site, HeadacheDrugs.com. There's lots of great info, and you can find our email off of the site, HeadacheDrugs.com. First this week, there was an interesting study this week about moms-to-be and anxiety and depression. And the bottom line was that uh, expected moms are often anxious and depressed, and a lot of times it's missed. According to the study, it was not uncommon for expected mothers to feel anxious and depressed, a new research study showed, and these feelings can have serious consequences for mom and baby. The researchers said our study shows that anxiety and depression during pregnancy should also not be overlooked given that both are highly prevalent and strongly associated with postpartum depression, which can be severe. In the study, between 12 and 17% of women were found to have both anxiety and depression at various stages of pregnancy, and both anxiety and depression were found to be more prevalent in the first and third trimesters. They seem to get a little bit better in mid-pregnancy. Younger age and a history of drinking were risk factors for anxiety and depression, so older moms actually had less anxiety and depression As mentioned, women who were anxious or depressed before giving birth were at an increased risk for postpartum depression. We always look for pre-pregnancy depression, a history of depression, family history, and that can predict postpartum depression. Regular postpartum depression can be treated relatively easily. It's the severe, severe psychotic depression where moms kill themselves or their babies. What do you think, Susie? Well, you know, I we always hear about the hormonal issue. Hormones are up, they're changed after childbirth. So in thinking about this study, certainly hormones must play a part in how the pregnant women are feeling. But I also have to think that the anxiety and or depression could be coming from a situational feeling of, what am I going to do after this baby is born? I want to have this baby but I have to go back to work. What am I going to do about child care? How am I going to handle two children instead of one child? There's so many concrete issues that pregnant women must deal with. So I'm wondering if a lot of this is just based on women figuring out how they're going to cope after the baby's born. That's a great point. And also I think lack of sleep adds in. And if the mom has other kids around, it's tougher There's a lot of factors. I think it's much tougher than in the United States than in the 50s and 60s where one income would suffice. Now uh, most households need two incomes or uh, even two doesn't do it. So you're pregnant, you have another kid. uh, The financial worries and work really bear on the women. But it is a physiologic thing. Sometimes these postpartum depressions just get really severe and women really need to get into counseling and on some meds. There is a big issue that we've touched on in the show before about medicine during pregnancy. 
and in general, severe depression is more of a risk factor than the medicines. If women are more than mildly depressed, I really think that they should be on some antidepressant. If it's regular depression, if it's bipolar depression, which is common, uh, we treat it differently, but there are medicines that you can take. A lot of the issues that women face when they are pregnant, but thinking ahead to when the baby is born, many of those issues do work themselves out. As I mentioned a few minutes ago about child care, for many women, there is that anxiety before the baby is born is, how am I going to get back to work full-time now with two children in daycare versus one child in daycare? How is it all going to work out? And to put a positive spin on it, it, it usually does work out. And for many women, it's just the anxiety of being able to picture this whole scenario happening. But it does happen, and for the most part, it does work. Also, pregnancy uh, sometimes affects the marriage, especially if you have another kid or two around. You know, nothing is worse than marital woes. You can cut the tension with a knife, and uh, that can add to problems. When the marriage isn't terrific or the father-to-be is getting very anxious himself or he's not a great dad, it just adds to the anxiety of the mom. I totally agree with that, and that actually helps support what I was just going to say, and that is that for the uh, pregnant woman, in her dealings with how she's going to take care of all these issues that she has, is to keep in mind that she's got to have dialogue with her partner so that they can tackle most of these problems or all of the problems together. Now, segueing on to uh, our next study, there's been studies like this before about low back pain. What is the best treatment? This was a treatment of spinal manipulation by a chiropractor versus medicine versus doing neither. Sometimes they combine the medicine with the uh, manipulation by a chiropractor. And it was really a pretty well done study, 240 patients, which is a lot. It's a tough study. They were randomly assigned. And in the end, doing nothing basically worked as well as uh, manipulation and the anti-inflammatories. Uh, I've seen previous studies on low back pain before in general where just watchful waiting or seeing your family doctor and getting just some anti-inflammatories does as well as physical therapy, chiropractic, injections, etc., etc. In the old days, 25 years ago, we would put people in the hospital for traction, which didn't do much good, and they would lay in the bed, and they actually, it, it inhibited healing. We want people to try to maintain uh, some walking and some of their normal activities as tough as it is with severe back spasms. And, of course, it depends where the back pain is coming from. If it's a herniated disc, you'll usually have pain and numbness, severe pain down a leg. It's called sciatica. Uh, if it's back spasms, muscular or soft tissue, it's just basically uh, twisting or severe pain with certain movements in the low back. But the bottom line was... Uh, people don't have to rush off to a doctor uh, unless something unusual is going on. That uh, watchful waiting treated it just as well. Uh, we don't have great treatments for back pain uh, that are different than we had 30 and 50 years ago, but it's nice to look at studies on these things and see what really works and what doesn't. This really corroborates previous studies where there is no great treatment other than uh, just going about your normal activities, it's better not to lay in bed with acute low back pain. Now, on another front, there was an interesting study about counseling, which is therapy, 
and prostate cancer patients and their wives. Just a few counseling sessions, the researcher said, may help both men and their wives deal with a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Past research has indicated that wives often suffer even more emotional distress than their husbands after prostate cancer diagnosis. Besides dealing with their own anxiety, wives have to take on the role of caregiver, but there's not many resources available to them. Uh, In some areas, there are some resources, like cancer wellness centers. In other areas, there's not very much. Couples in this study were given information about prostate cancer and its treatment. Uh, They had a few counseling sessions. By the study's end, men who received counseling reported less uncertainty about their condition, and they communicated with their wives better. Their wives seemed to benefit even more than the men from counseling. Uh, They had a better quality of life, more self-confidence and communication, less hopelessness. Uh, In past uh, research, the researchers have found that wives often had more emotional distress than the prostate cancer patients themselves, but they rarely got uh, counseling or were recommended it. Too often, the investigators write, they are viewed, uh, the wives are viewed as outside observers or, or only as providers of care. Instead, the doctors need to recognize that spouses are affected by the cancer and to treat them uh, as co-recipients of care and push counseling. Now, Susie, you've had uh, experience in dealing with cancer patients. Uh, now, what do you think about this study? Well, I think it certainly makes sense, and it would make even more sense if we saw more counseling for families across the board, no matter what kind of cancer the spouse is being treated for. Yeah, I think the only difference with prostate cancer is more sexual issues in the men, certainly after the major surgery for a while. But cancer really affects the whole family, kids, spouses, financially, emotionally. It brings up mortality issues. There's so much that goes on. And I think that even a few sessions of therapy can go a long way. I agree with that. I do think that patients and their families do need to somewhat seek it out. Even though when when a patient comes in, um, say for um, chemotherapy treatment, there are nurses there, you know, certainly, typically there are a social worker who is usually available or in the area. However, I think people do have to seek it out because everybody or the professionals who are within that chemotherapy treatment area are usually so busy just trying to administer the treatments that sometimes, you know, somebody might be trying to voice a concern and, and the nurses certainly want to be able to sit and talk, but they don't always have that luxury of being able to do it. So it seems to me that patients do need to actively ask for it or seek outside help in getting what they need. Now, people always ask, where do I go for a therapist, or how do I find one? What would you suggest or tell patients who have cancer? Well, I think they certainly could get recommendations right within their um, chemotherapy treatment area, either through a nurse, through their doctor, because typically there are hospital social workers right on call within that area, and if not If a patient chooses or would prefer to see somebody outside of the hospital, they can certainly get names from um, the uh, hospital professionals there. In some areas, there's places that are, uh, well, uh, around Chicago, it's called the Cancer Wellness Center, where they have free counseling and information in groups, and that's been really good. 
they have other places similar that are named differently in other areas. But I think the big problem with therapy and counseling is money and time. People have all kinds of excuses, uh, but the money is an issue. And, and the one thing that really helps people consistently is psychotherapy or counseling and insurances for some strange reason pay the least well for it. Where we are in the northern suburbs of Chicago, we do have a wonderful place called the Cancer Wellness Center that is open to families. But not every area has something like that. So I would also suggest looking in your local directory and looking for um, social service agencies. Many of them do have sliding scale fees where you wouldn't have to pay a full price to see a counselor. And I think that could certainly help not only with the fear of the cost of it, but also in general being able to um, go to a safe place and talk about your fears and, and concerns. That's a great point. We have a lot of patients who uh, can't financially go to counseling or therapy, and I, they say, how do I find a sliding scale? Sometimes they're called family services, uh, you know, family services of Smallville. But I also suggest call calling out of the yellow pages psychologists or social workers who do therapy, and they usually know the sliding scale places in the area and uh, can give you the phone number. You know, my experience, too, is that I think if, say, a, sp- a husband and wife were talking with a professional, say, a social worker psychologist about their fears, I think they many times they'd be more willing to really talk about their fears and anxieties if there was somebody else there with them, because there certainly can be fear on both sides with the patient and with the spouse. And having somebody there who can help facilitate it can really make a difference. I think that's a great point, particularly with prostate cancer or the sexual issues. A lot of times people need a professional to talk to, otherwise they won't talk about it. Absolutely, but also as well with other cancers where uh, the survival rate might be much lower, there becomes a, obviously a need to talk because of what the cancer is actually doing and the overall health of the patient. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. You're listening to the Dr. Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins, neurologist, among other titles. Here with my wife and social worker, Susie Robbins. And the show is about cutting-edge medical issues of the day, but also we read emails later on in the show. We're going to probably get to some emails. You can email us at DocLarryRobbins at AOL or come on over to the website HeadacheDrugs.com and our email is right there. Aspirin, of course, has turned out to be the miracle of modern times. It came out in the 1870s by the German organic chemists who were the leaders of the time. They were working on aniline dyes, and they came up with um, aspirin and some other compounds. It was really an amazing breakthrough. And who would have thunk it in the late 1800s that aspirin would prevent strokes and heart attacks and at least three types of cancer it helps? But the issue is the dose and does it work as well for women and men? There's been previous studies indicating that maybe it didn't work as well as women or at least we didn't have the data because some of the studies only had men. But then other studies now have had women and they indicate that maybe it doesn't work as well for women. This is a large study from Canada and the women with a low risk or average risk of having a heart attack, they concluded should probably not take aspirin as preventive therapy. In this study, 
the data were consistent with the notion that aspirin is less effective in women than in men for heart attacks. And women are more susceptible to aspirin resistance, which is where aspirin doesn't really work. You know, we've touched on this in the show before, uh, aspirin resistance. You know, a lot of people, millions of people are on aspirin, and we still don't know the dose, and I think it varies widely from person to person. Uh, A lot of people come and see me, they're on baby aspirin, which is 81 milligrams, or half an aspirin. Uh, A regular aspirin is 325 milligrams, so a baby is a quarter. So if they take two babies, it's a half an aspirin a day. But that's still not enough. Uh, some research has indicated that as many as 35 or even 50% of people, the aspirin is not doing any good. It's called aspirin resistance. So we should probably, if we're going to have people on these uh, on aspirin for decades, we should probably test them for aspirin resistance. But aspirin still does decrease at least the risk for colon cancer, probably breast cancer, uh, as an anti-inflammatory. Well, I've thought about it. In fact, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about it again. I myself have tried the aspirin route, uh, especially because of a history of colon cancer in my family, but I tend to get bruising somewhat bad, so then I end up coming off of it again. But I suppose it's worth trying again and maybe even just having a baby aspirin and trying a bit of that. Well, the major side effect of aspirin is the stomach. Uh, It increases the risk for bleeding. And a lot of people need anti-inflammatories. They'll go on ibuprofen, which is Advil, or naproxen, which is Aleve, or go to an orthopedic doc for a shoulder injury. A typical person, they're 50 years old, they're on aspirin, they go to an orthopedic doc, they get on an anti-inflammatory, and now you have a double risk of bleeding if you don't stop the aspirin. And in your situation, Susie, you're getting some bruising, which is relatively common with aspirin. It makes it more likely to bruise. Uh, so there, aspirin is not totally benign and without risks. However, the, the benefits are so much. And I think despite this study, uh, there is some benefit for the stroke and, and heart in women, more maybe with the cancer. And you can make a case that everybody with risk factors should be on aspirin. There's other anti-inflammatories uh, or uh, there's other medicines that are like aspirin that can thin out the blood like Plavix and Maybe these are more appropriate for women. We'll need more studies. But aspirin certainly is not without its risks and side effects. Now, moving along to uh, a subject that we've touched on in the past, teenagers at risk who are depressed and have had some substance abuse, they looked at research as far as do medicines help, does psychotherapy help, and this new research indicated that fluoxetine, which is Prozac, plus therapy, is very effective for teens with depression and substance use. However, the findings also suggest that much of the benefit can be achieved with therapy alone. The authors concluded that it might be appropriate to start with therapy and then add Prozac or fluoxetine in the patients who don't respond. And remember, we touched about upon this uh, about a month ago that the risks of the antidepressants were overstated in adolescents, they feel that the suicide risk is really minimal, and uh, these medicines prevent a lot more suicide than they would possibly cause, and there's an issue whether they actually cause any. Uh, So we're not that reluctant to use medicine, but we don't want to commit kids to years of medicine if we can avoid it. The researchers went on to say that for patients who did not respond to therapy, 
Uh, Prozac or fluoxetine should be considered even if adolescents are still uh, on drugs or using substances with weekly monitoring of whether they're actually taking the medicine, substance use, etc. So they do need close monitoring. Now, Susie, I know in your social work career you worked with adolescents who had uh, substance abuse. What do you think about this study? Well, it's interesting when we talk about a dual diagnosis, say, of depression and substance abuse with an adolescent. When I was working in a high school, I was typically working with kids who had substance issues. Some of them were abusing, some were not abusing, but were at the very least experimenting. But to add in the depression into it, thinking about it now within the sphere of the high school that I was in, we were looking much more directly just at the substance abuse. But I think, obviously, in retrospect now, we really all need to be looking at all sides of it. For example, let's say if I saw a student who was sent to me because of um, concerns with substance abuse, I would meet with he or she, I would then meet with his parents, we would meet together in a group setting with other adolescents facing the same issue. But we never really went head-on with the fact that there might be some depression. We were only dealing with that abuse side of it. How are the parents to deal with, too? Did they, most of them okay, or did they protect their little Johnny and deny it? Well, I think like in any situation you're going to have across the board, lots of different reactions from the parents. One reaction would be, please, I'm so glad he got caught because we need help. I'll do whatever I can to the parents who just don't show up at all, which to me was the ultimate negative of not even bothering to come, especially when their kid was there. Yeah, Um, it's not a great message to the kid. We don't really care enough to show up. Absolutely. But the point I'm getting to is, is that in our society, we have to look at the adolescent in a much more global way and not just looking at the substance, just as as we should be with adults. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in adults, I've always felt part of the reason that some treatment centers that people fail is there's too much emphasis on the substance and not in, on the underlying psychiatric condition, particularly if it's a personality disorder. And in the adolescence, the problem is it's fine to say, they should see therapy. But again, because of money and time, in certain areas there aren't adequate therapists, people don't want to go, they don't they their insurance doesn't pay. They always ask people always ask, Well, I need to see somebody within my insurance, and then there's nobody really good within their insurance plan. In other editions uh, of the Dr. Robin show, we'll talk about what to do about what we really should do about health care, but it is a broken system where people can't see therapists. So ideally we'd like to get them to the therapists. But if we look at what happened in England after the misguided uh, representation that Prozac and, and the SSRIs increased the suicide rate in adolescents, they recommended that all the kids at risk get therapy, and it didn't happen. This was 1983, uh, 2003-2004. What happens is the kids just didn't get treated for their depression because there weren't therapists. They didn't go. So where there are therapists, I, I do like kids to go. The other thing is there's not, uh, it's a tough thing to deal with adolescence in therapy. It takes a, a special therapist. It's not so easy. I think it's probably easier with adults. And of course, just because an adolescent is experimenting with drugs, which most of them do, it doesn't mean that they're depressed. But we always need to be on the lookout for depression because 
the consequences and side effects of depression are not doing as well in school, lower self-esteem, and the ultimate horrible consequence, which is suicide. Now, there was a discouraging study that indicated last year over 35 million Americans faced hunger. The U.S. government said that the number of Americans who went hungry, at least at times in 2006, was a staggering 35 million people, but food advocacy groups said that it may be more and more needs to be done about the food situation. Twelve and a half million households were felt to be food insecure, and that was up from the previous year. Food insecurity is having difficulty acquiring enough food for the household throughout the year, and of course it's a socioeconomic issue, but it's not limited to the inner city. I think it strikes uh, many municipalities and suburbs and rural areas as well. Now, one of the big programs, the food stamp program, does save people from a lot of the hunger. 27 million people are enrolled in the food stamp program, which helps poor Americans buy food. Unfortunately, everybody that's not, that is eligible for food stamps is not participating. Either they choose not to for some reason, or they don't know how to go about getting the food stamps. You know, it, it is really staggering that 36 million people in the country face not having enough food last year when we produce plenty of food. Well, it brings to mind for me thinking about children going off to school in the morning without breakfast, without anything to fuel themselves to get through the day. And thank goodness many schools throughout the country offer not only lunches for their students, subsidized lunches, but also breakfasts. Uh, I just saw in the Chicago Tribune just the other day that some schools are now implementing packages that kids can take home on Fridays that give them some healthy snacks to tide them over the weekend. Because as we know, if kids are not in school over the weekends, and so those breakfasts and lunches that they get during the week, uh, they're not getting on the weekend. So now they're able to, at least some children are able to bring home healthy snacks to eat on Saturdays and Sundays. And I, I think that hunger brings up uh, more societal issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reflects poverty. And remember many, many years ago, decades ago, was the war on poverty, and it shows we have a long ways to go. But as individuals, what can we do? I think we can support our local food pantry. You know, it, it occurs to me that uh, even in relatively well-to-do suburbs, that the food pantries are busy. And a lot of people, if you look at the foreclosure situation, a lot of people are down and out, and they rely on the pantries so we can all at least, uh, we can't cure poverty worldwide or in the United States and hunger, but at least in our own little way, uh, we can help out. You know, I love the idea when people are having some sort of get-together, either at a home or in a public place, that to gain admission, you have to bring at least one can of food that can then be brought. So I think we can all, as you say, in our own little way, think of creative ways of helping to support our local food banks. It's always been an issue with high blood pressure. Should you be on a low-salt diet? How much low-salt? Years ago, we put people on very low, 3-gram or less salt-per-day diets, and the issue was uh, most people wouldn't adhere to it. They couldn't. And unfortunately, with blood pressure, people don't feel their blood pressure. So unless they're really motivated, a lot of people don't even take their medicines because uh, they don't feel anything and don't really realize the consequences. In fact, a recent study 
indicated that that most people who are on medicine, particularly for blood pressure, have no idea the name of the medicine and how much they should be taking. So we don't want to put people on too restrictive a diet where they can't follow it. But in this study, simply avoiding pre-salted foods and not adding extra salt results in a modest but significant reduction in blood pressure. The results indicated that there is strong support for universal salt reduction in all hypertensive individuals. If you have normal blood pressure or low, you don't really have to restrict salt all that much. We don't want to have high salt, high sugar diets, but you don't have to go crazy watching the salt. It's more people with borderline or high blood pressure. Unfortunately, we've lowered where we want blood pressure with people. Uh, we used to say 140 over 90 is borderline. Now that's definitely high blood pressure. And we want people really lower. Low 120s is a high number over 80 or lower. Because every five points you lower the blood pressure, uh, people's risk for strokes and heart attacks goes way down. So watching salt to some degree, not adding salt and watching how much is that you don't have to read every milligram on everything you buy in the grocery store, but to be aware somewhat helps a whole lot. Now, it does occur to me, it's always harder, it takes more effort to eat well, not eat totally fast food. It's harder to shop, uh, but educating yourself is really worth it. I think that, unfortunately, even with all the uh, materials around and in the newspapers and magazines, uh, at least half the country doesn't really know much about fats and salt and sugars, and, um, you know, we wonder why our country is uh, more and more overweight and the most overweight country in the world, really. I think it's complicated. There's a lot going on, but part of it is education. There's some evidence that the people who read more and kids and adolescents who get some education on this end up eating better. I think it's a whole process, particularly for adolescents and people in their 20s, to morph into a healthier diet. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, I also think that the uh, saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, no pun intended with the apple, but I think kids do pick up a lot of their eating habits, obviously, from their parents. If mom and dad are making an effort to eat healthier and stocking the refrigerator with healthier things, I think, I think our adolescent kids, whether they're aware of it or not, are going to pick up on some of those good habits and hopefully hold on to them. Absolutely. I think it's the same with parents who smoke, parents who drink. The kids are more likely to smoke and drink. And parents who pay some attention to their diet, it's going to trickle down. You've discovered TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. There was an interesting study about bipolar depression and suicide risk, and it corroborated previous studies that showing uh, in the study having a family member who committed suicide triples the likelihood that people with bipolar depression will themselves attempt suicide. And we've looked at this, a family history of Suicide is very crucial as far as your risk. Family history of suicide increases the risk for people with other types of mental illness also, the researcher said. But this inherited risk should not be seen as fate, 
but it is an opportunity for prevention. There's room for action, education, awareness. In other words, uh, we're more on the lookout for depression, and the way we treat suicide is to uh, treat the underlying illness, with, which is the depression, and not ignore it. People with a family history of suicide were more likely to have anxiety, and more than 52% of the people who had a family history of suicide reported a suicide attempt compared to 26% half who had no family history. And interestingly, I like how the researchers put this. They said that suicide should be thought of as a complication of mental illness, just as death is from a heart attack is seen as a risk for people with cardiovascular disease. They concluded that there's a lot of room for prevention if doctors are aware and people are aware that some people are at higher risk than others. Uh, And even though, obviously, a lot of this is genetic, we still have our free will. It doesn't mean if a parent or grandparent committed suicide that we have to. We can get help. Susie? Well, I, I do agree with everything you're saying. I one thing that comes to my mind is that obviously for the person who's contemplating or who carries out the suicide, what a loss it is, but also the repercussion for generations in a family when a suicide has occurred and how that affects the rest of the family for so many years after that. The repercussions are enormous besides the risk uh, to other generations. If you commit suicide, your kids are now... Uh, by definition, at higher risk for committing. But um, there's a lot of anger, fallout with families, with suicide. There's a whole lot of fallout, and uh, it just leaves a trail. But on the other hand, when people are despondent enough to get to the point of suicide, uh, you know, sometimes it's an irrational thing. Now, last week, there was also an interesting study on the heart that we've seen before, but we need more studies like this. Look at it, angioplasty, which is, which is where they just do an angiogram and they thread up a little catheter into the heart and unclog an artery and usually put what's called a stent into that artery. Uh, but it's not a major, huge open operation like a bypass, like a heart coronary bypass. They looked at long-term survival of angioplasty versus the big uh, bypass and For people with heart disease who need a procedure to unblock their clogged arteries, angioplasty or the bypass provide similar 10-year survival rates. So if you look 10 years out, uh, just as many people are surviving well with angioplasty versus the bypass. But in the short term, the bypass was better at relieving chest pain and preventing the need for a repeat procedure, which is very important. Repeat procedures which is another angioplasty or another bypass. The uh, ones with bypass had only a 10% chance of having a repeat procedure. So they were four times as less after a bypass to have a repeat procedure, which uh, is very important. You don't want to end up back in the hospital, back in the ICU. Now, these studies are um, ongoing. We need more studies like this. It doesn't mean that angioplasty is better than bypass or vice versa, but it shows that sometimes we can't avoid the big surgery, and everybody is different with this. If they have three vessels that are clogged uh, around their artery and there's long clogs, uh, long areas of narrowing, 
they often cannot do an angioplasty. It's not even an option. And while a bypass is a major, huge operation which with a big recovery, it's a lot different than 15 and 25 years ago. It's a whole world of difference how they do it now. But this is the only way in medicine that we get anywhere is these long-term comparison studies. And it's tough. It takes 10, 20 years and a lot of bucks to do these studies. Now, there was an interesting study on anger and chronic stress as a risk factor for heart disease. They looked at men with borderline high blood pressure. An angry disposition may worsen the problem and raise the risk of eventual heart disease. Long-term stress may do the same in both men and women. Both chronic stress and anger-prone personalities have been linked to heart disease before, and this is not all that surprising. Men who scored high on the anger tests were 70% more likely than their more mellow peers to develop high blood pressure and subsequently heart attacks. Now, when you have chronic stress and anger, it does change your blood chemistry and raises certain chemicals that are not good. But also, people with hostile temperaments, they said, may be resistant to changing their lifestyle or following medical advice, and that's certainly true. Now, the issue is, can learning uh, through stress management or anger control ward off heart disease or help the situation? Can we modify this in anger-prone individuals? And we really can't say without uh, adequate trials. The uh, problem that I've seen with anger studies is they focus on anger like it's a diagnosis, but it's really more a symptom uh, of an underlying personality or what we call a temperament or sometimes uh, an underlying psychiatric diagnosis. People with certain personality disorders like borderline personality, narcissistic, paranoid, they tend to be angry. That's part of their brain chemistry. They're angry. Some people with bipolar depression are just chronically angry and irritable, and it's part of their brain chemistry. So uh, behaviorally, yes, you can go into groups, etc., and uh, learn to control the anger, not let it lead to uh, killing people or uh, losing your job constantly. But can we change the underlying brain chemistry? And that's unclear. Susie? Well, you know, I think it seems over over the years we've probably heard more about this uh, topic as it relates to men. But it does seem like this can certainly affect women just as well if their temperament is such that uh, they fly off the handle. Um, would you say that it's just as likely that they'd be vulnerable to um, heart disease? I think it's a problem for both men and women with anger. You know, most studies start out, they're, they're doing more studies in men for some reason. And with heart disease, you know, many years ago, they didn't focus on women at all with heart disease. If you had chest pain or shoulder pain, or jaw pain, and it was angina. If you were a woman, it was overlooked. You went to the ER, you called your doctor. Now we're realizing women get just as much, and we have to pay attention. It comes across a little differently sometimes. But women with angry temperaments, uh, particularly if they have higher blood pressure, are sure are going to be at an increased risk. It's just tough to treat it. You know, you have to get people into therapy. I think some medicine... Uh, antidepressants, etc., can go a long way toward. Some people get on an antidepressant that raises serotonin, like Prozac, and their anger is 98% better. And it, it's a relatively easy solution. 
Other people with a personality disorder, there's no easy solution. So I think it's a case-by-case basis, but it is interesting to realize that personalities, it's not just a quality of life and anger. It raises our risk for serious medical illnesses. And now for our always popular email segment, you can email us at DocLarryRobbins at AOL or go to our website, HeadacheDrugs.com. And, Susie, what was the first email? Okay, let's see. The first email is addressed to you. Dr. Robbins, how about caffeine? Good or bad? How much should I limit it? Well, this is a common question that I get from patients. Caffeine does good things and it does bad things. Uh, We don't want to use too much. The new energy drinks are a big problem. They're raising blood pressure. They not only have a lot of caffeine or guarana, which is essentially caffeine, they have taurine. Uh, that's T-A-U-R-I-N-E, you'll see on the ingredients of a lot of the energy drinks, and that also can raise your blood pressure. Uh, we don't want to use too much caffeine. There is some good studies about uh, coffee with or without caffeine actually having some antioxidant and cancer-fighting properties. Caffeine may have some good benefits, but I do think that people should limit it to 150 or 200 milligrams a day or lower, and maybe even lower if their blood pressure is high. Now, your average cup of coffee has about 150 milligrams. Instant has 70 or 80. But if you go to a specialty coffee house like Starbucks or Caribou, etc., it's usually two to three times as much. So a Starbucks may have 400 milligrams of caffeine in their coffee. Starbucks actually has about 23 milligrams per ounce, uh, which is quite a bit more than your Folgers or Hills Brothers, your usual brewed coffee. Uh, a can of Coke has about 50 milligrams. Uh, most soft drinks have 40 to 60, uh, but Mountain Dew and Jolt have a little more. And tea has some. It has 20 to 50 milligrams per cup. Uh, if it has caffeine, herbal teas don't usually. So you count up your caffeine, but a lot of medicines have caffeine. There's a lot of people taking six or eight Excedrin out there. Each Excedrin has 65 milligrams of caffeine. Uh, so you can get a lot of caffeine. There's a lot of people out there on 800 or 1,000 milligrams of caffeine a day, and when they slowly reduce it to 150 or so, they feel better, more energy. The problem is on a weekend, if you're not around your caffeine, people get depressed, they have no energy, and your brain quickly becomes tolerant to caffeine where higher amounts don't do very much. You're chasing that first cup all day, so if you slowly you take three weeks to reduce your caffeine, two, or, two to four weeks, slowly drink decaf, half and half, uh, people feel actually better on less caffeine. But a lot of people feel fine with some caffeine, so small amounts is fine. Now our next email is, uh, Susie, is there really evidence that therapy and counseling can prevent recurrence of cancer? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know of any studies. I think maybe you have heard of a recent one regarding that. Wouldn't it be nice to think that it would? It kind of brings to mind for me, uh, you know, when we hear stories about cancer survivors versus um, uh, people who have had cancer and passed away, is it because the survivors had something extra, the, some, some will to live, um, that's what this is bringing to mind for me is that if somebody goes the extra yard and uh, gets into therapy, can that 
offer them some protection? I don't think so, but I, I don't know if there's any evidence out there. Well, it's interesting. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a study about therapy. It was recently done uh, for breast cancer, and women with breast cancer who did therapy once a week had, in this study, 45% or 50% less metastases, less recurrence of cancer, which was surprising to me. But I think a better done, more recent study indicated that therapy and counseling do not decrease the risk for recurrent cancer or metastatic. I think they help. the therapy helps uh, our quality of life and helps families and, and uh, couples, but it doesn't really reduce the risk of cancer, at least according to the recent study. But I don't think this is uh, absolutely uh, written in stone yet because there is the mind-body connection, and if we're more relaxed, less stressed, etc., maybe we can fight off things, uh, certainly heart disease and cancer better, but the evidence says no. Okay, this is addressed to Dr. Robbins. I have a 13-year-old son with ADD, but my husband is against medicine. What alternatives can help? Well, I think this is very common. Um, You know, we've talked on this study, uh, on this uh, program before about ADD, ADHD, which is attention deficit disorder, which is a real disorder, and it leads to lower self-esteem in kids, it leads to a much higher risk of substance abuse and impulsivity and jail time and just not doing well in people's lives unless it's treated. And the question is, does anything outside of medicine help ADD? A number of years ago, through NIMH, um, National Institute of Mental Health, they did a large study that was very expensive for a whole year where they did therapy with kids versus medicine versus both. And... Uh, The therapy was very good. They put a very experienced social worker for tens of thousands of dollars each into the classroom all year with a kid. And it turned out that therapy worked okay as far as talking to the kid and keeping them on task, but it didn't work as well as medicine. And as soon as you stop the therapy, the benefits went away. And, of course, nobody can have a therapist three times a week like they did. The bottom line of the study was that only medicines like the ADD medicines, the Adderalls and Ritalins and Strateras of the world, uh, worked. But I think there is a role for counseling for the kids and uh, particularly for the parents in parenting kids, children with ADD. I think uh, parent coaching can help very much. But it was a discouraging study as far as alternatives. As far as vitamins and herbs, etc., I haven't seen any that have worked. Uh, there was recently a negative study on, uh, they looked at alternatives for depression, anxiety in the elderly. Uh, vitamins and herbs didn't seem to work at all. Um, but uh, yoga and tai chi and some other things, alternatives, did seem beneficial. But for ADD, we're still stuck with the medicines, unfortunately. There is a lot going on in the brain in, in kids with ADD and in adults, and it's a lifelong disorder. Not everybody needs medicine. Um, a lot of people are well compensated, and not everybody needs medicine all the time. Uh, especially as you get older, you can pick and choose when you take them. A lot of people, especially college or after, take medicine four days a week, three days a week. It's the younger kids who need it five or six days. I will say that it is very tough in a classroom setting. If a, if a kid has severe ADHD and they're not medicated, it's tough on him, and it's tough on the classroom. 
but also at home, uh, nobody knows how difficult it is raising somebody with ADD unless they're in the home. It's a very tough thing, and it's a very genetic illness. So usually one of the parents has it, and very often if there's four siblings, two or three of the siblings have ADD. Well, that'll wrap up this week's edition of the Dr. Robbins Show. You can listen to us every week and certainly email us at DocLarryRobbins, that's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL, or to get our email and a lot of information, tons of articles, visit our website, HeadacheDrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, M.D., and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com.